month. All right, let's get into Matthew chapter 19. Uh, if you'd like to in this, in this service, we often stand uh, when we read the Word of God. So if you'd like to stand, you can stand. And I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 19, okay? Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are asking you, God, to work in the marriages in our church. Father, we're asking today um, that you would build up and that you would strengthen. God, that you would give us a, a biblical framework to think about marriage and to celebrate marriage and to build strong marriages. Father, we, we pray for those this morning that have, have experienced the struggle and the pain and the hardship and the brokenness of of broken families and of divorce, and we ask, God, that you would just pour out your special grace upon them, that you would restore them, God, that you would bring, um, bring hope in their lives. Father, we pray that we'd be a church that thinks about marriage well and rightly. God, we, we ask, God, that you would help us to, to build families, to, to instruct children um, so that they think and, and, and believe what you say about marriage. Father, we ask these things. We ask for the Spirit's help, for the Spirit's power, for your working in us today. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So in verse 2, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. Did you notice that? They ask him a question, but, but the Scripture is really clear. They ask it so that they are going to test him. They're going to trap him. This is one of those, those times where the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus in something that will, will turn the people against him. They, they want to ask a question that no matter how he answers, he, he's going to get in trouble. No matter how he answers, he, he, he's going to either get the wrath of, of the religious leaders or the wrath of the people. And, and so they're, they're trying to trap Jesus. I, I kind of think they, they hope that, if you remember, the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They tried to undermine Jesus. And, and I kind of think they're thinking that, that maybe the same thing that happened to John the Baptist. If you remember earlier in Matthew, when he criticized the, the, the marriage of Herod, uh, the kind of the ruler over that region, uh, to his brother's wife. He had an adulterous affair that ended up in marrying his brother's wife, and John criticized that or spoke the word of God over that, and John ended up losing his head over that. And I kind of wonder if, if the Pharisees weren't trying to trap Jesus in this same sort of thing. And so, so they're asking him a question that is incredibly controversial. Now, interestingly enough, 2,000 years have gone by, 
and nothing has changed, has it? Uh, nothing has changed about this subject, all right? Uh, divorce is still a really emotional, painful, difficult subject for us here this morning, even in our church. And so before we go any further, I want to make some things clear. I did this about a year ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to do it again. I, I, want, to, I want to help you, I want to give you a biblical framework of, of what, what we hope our, our communication about families, about divorce, about marriage comes from our church, okay? So, so here's one of the things that I hope comes clear, comes across clearly from our church to our community, okay? Number one, Jesus loves people who have suffered through a divorce, okay? We really want people to know that. I think sometimes people think, especially when their lives have been so broken and shattered that, that Jesus doesn't love them anymore. And, and man, I'm telling you, we want people to know that Jesus loves broken people. Jesus loves uh, people that have, have suffered even through a divorce, through even the innocent spouse, the spouse who severed the marriage. We want them to know of the love of God that is steadfast and sure. We want them to know that through repentance and faith, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all sin, to forgive all sin. We want them to know that, that there is forgiveness in the cross of Christ. We want them to know that the grace and power of Jesus are sufficient to both heal and restore those whose lives have been shattered through broken families and through divorce. We want them to know that there is an abundance of hope. We, we want them to see that hope. We want them to see the, the hope, the confident expectation of good things to come that are in Christ for those who feel broken and abandoned because of, of a broken family, because of divorce. So we understand. We understand that people find themselves in lots of different situations. And, and you know what? There, there are times this morning that I believe in the three services this morning, there were times where hopefully people who are in a marriage that's struggling, in a marriage that's difficult, that they're going to hear the Word of God and it's going to pull them back to where they need to be. We also understand that there are some folks that, there's no fixing what has already happened. Uh, there, 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 there's maybe situations where a spouse is already remarried or, or they've already remarried, and, and there, there's no going back. Until Walmart sell, starts selling time machines, there, there's no way to go back and, and redo some of the things that have happened. And so isn't it beautiful today that we know that Jesus takes you right where you are? Uh, right wherever you're at. I, I love the story of the woman at the well whom Jesus encounters, and she's been married, I think it was five times, and the guy that she was, she was presently living with wasn't her husband. And what does Jesus do? He meets her right where she's at with the good news of the gospel. He meets her with the living water of the gospel. He meets her with an offer of salvation to be joined to him and, and to be transformed into a new creation. And we hope that that is the message that comes across from Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. So we want to be a church that loves the wounded, but we also, okay, with equal importance, we also want to be a church that cultivates a strong Christ-centered view of marriage, okay? We, we want that. We desperately want our community to see that we are speaking what God says about marriage. We, we want to so talk about marriage in such a biblical way that, that, it, that it creates these fortified walls, this hedge of protection around the families within our body of, of believers. Man, we, we want that. We want to create a culture where we look to Jesus to define marriage. We, we don't look to the world and say, hey, you tell us what marriage is, or, or we're going to follow the whims of our culture. And we want to create 
families here at Lincoln where we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you tell us what marriage is. You define that for us. We, we want to be a, a church that looks to Jesus and how to build a marriage. We want to be a church that looks to Jesus on how to find a spouse. You know, we were in, we were in Man Up a couple years ago, and I had the guys take a little survey and say, okay, how many of you guys had help? Like, how many of you guys had a mentor, had a parent who kind of instructed you, here's what you ought to look for in a spouse? Hardly any hands came up. You know, and we had a little discussion about that, and there were guys that said, man, I, I had no instruction at all. None about marriage, none about, you know, who, what kind of spouse should I look for? Man, we want to create a culture at Lincoln where families Families have a clear picture of what marriage is and, and how to pursue a wife, how to pursue a husband, how, how that looks in a, in a biblical framework, all right? So that, that's really our heart. We wanna love the wounded and we wanna exalt marriage because we believe that is the best thing for our families and for our culture and we believe it's a biblical thing. So let's answer, let's let Jesus answer the question of the Pharisees, all right? So what's the Pharisees' question here in verse two or verse uh, three it is? And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, now, now here's the thing you gotta start out with. They are asking the wrong question, are they not? Like, like, like one of the things in life is you ought to ask the right questions, all right? They're asking the wrong question. The, the question they're asking is, when is it okay to get divorced? The question they're asking is, when is God all right with that? When, when do I have God's permission to get divorced? When is divorce permissible? And none of those are God's heart. None of those are the right question. Man, the question that we want to ask at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church, the question that my wife ought to be asking is this, how can I stay married to the same broken sinner for a lifetime? That's the question, right? That's the one that we want to say, God, would you show us that. God, would, would you teach us, teach us how we can love a broken spouse to the glory of God and live out the picture of Christ in the church for my whole life? That is the question that we ought to be asking about marriage. Now, the Pharisees, what are they asking? Hey, when's it all right? When is it okay for me to check out on this deal? When's it okay for me to take off? You know, what, what does she have to do that makes it all right for me to split on this thing? You know, if she's a bad cook, you know, if she's messy, you know, if, if she's given birth to five children and, you know, who'd have thought she doesn't look exactly like she did on her wedding day. You know, Jesus, is that, is that enough for me to split on this thing? You know, or, or maybe let's turn it around the other way. Maybe the wife's asking, you know, man, what if he goes bald? That was a, that was a deal. He looked like Tom Selleck when we got married. Now, he, you know, he looks like Kojak. You know what I mean? You know, is this, is this, when can I, when is it enough? Or maybe he's lazy or maybe he didn't have a great job or maybe she's stubborn or he's annoying or she embarrasses me or, or we don't like the same things or maybe she's a hag and he's a hick. You know, when is it all right for us to say no more? You know, I'm, I'm out on this deal. I, I, I've had enough. That's their question. Their question is, can I get a divorce for any reason? Now, there are certain things that as a Christian, you should not let your mind dwell on. Did you know that? I mean, the Bible really clearly teaches you that, that there are certain things you should think about. Okay, hey, where's our March Memory Month? Have I plugged this yet? Huh, right? There are certain things you should think about, right? There are certain things you should put in your head, and there are other things that you should not. There are other things you should not think about. Philippians 4.8 says it like this. I love this verse. It says, uh, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Like the, the Bible is describing, 
These are the things that should run through your mind. These are the things that you should think about. These are the things that you should let your mind, you know, settle upon. The mind is a powerful thing. The mind's like a loaded gun. And just like a loaded gun, you should be really careful where you point that thing, right? And, and your mind is that way. You should be careful where your mind is pointed. You should be careful what your, your mind is dwelling on. Don't let your mind dwell on the ways to get out of your marriage. That's not something you should think about. Don't let your mind consider all the things you dislike about your spouse. Man, some people have this list of, here's a few things I like about them, and then, oh, man, here's a bunch of things that I just can't, they just annoy me. You know, she likes cats. I mean, who could ever live with such a woman, right? I mean, all these things over here. Don't let your mind dwell on those. The Bible's really clear. Those aren't profitable for you to think about. Don't allow your mind to dream about Here's one that happens all the time to me in counseling. I have people who, who say, they admit that they think about, what if I were single? Or what if I had married somebody else? Hey, listen, those are unprofitable, God-dishonoring thoughts that weaken your resolve to build a marriage that brings glory to God. And, and so first of all, the Pharisees are asking the wrong question. And we want to be the kind of people that we ask the right question, right? We want to be the people that, that we're asking the right question. We're asking, how, how, do, how do I love my spouse? Even with their faults and even, even with our struggles, how do I love my spouse really well for a lifetime, right? We want to ask the right question. So here's how Jesus answers their wrong question, all right? So once again, their question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answers that. He answers that by asking, hey, have you guys ever read the creation story? I got to think that Jesus had a little sarcasm here, you know, because he's talking to the religious leaders of the day. He's talking to the guys that have been to seminary. He's talking to the guys that are supposed to know the Bible better than anybody else. And they ask him, well, you know, Jesus, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And he's like, have you guys not read the first page of the Bible? You know, have you not got to page one yet? Have you not got to Genesis chapters one and three? One through three. Have you not got to the creation story? And so he answers them by saying, hey, remember how God created man and woman. He created them male and female. And that was incredibly intentional. Okay. It's incredibly intentional. God didn't have to do that, by the way. God is an incredibly creative, powerful, nothing is impossible for him. He could have created mankind in which we propagated and multiplied in a completely different way. He didn't have to create us as he did, but he decided, he intentionally created us male and female. He created male and female, and he created male and female for the purpose of marriage. In other words, God created us the way we are for marriage. Marriage was not an afterthought. Marriage was an intentional design. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Okay, So he's saying, hey guys, let me answer your question for you. And here's what you got to know. God designed marriage. God created all, all people on the planet in a specific way. And he did so for the purpose and function of marriage. So in other words, when something is created a certain way, then you know its purpose. right? Then you, then you, then you know the reason for which it exists. Right? Now, now Paul fills in the blanks here in Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us a little more rounded information here, okay, about why we are created the way we are. So, so Jesus says you're created male and female for the purpose of marriage, for the purpose of this one flesh covenantal union between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, for all their life, all right, until, until one of them dies. Now, Paul gives a little more detail to that. Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay? So Paul puts marriage right here, and then he says, 
I want, I want you to think about the relationship between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and his bride. That's the, way G, that's the way the Bible refers to the church in the New Testament. I want you to think about Jesus and his bride right here. Okay, let me keep reading. For Christ is the head of the church as his body, as, his, as he himself is its Savior. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might pre- present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Can you guys tell, is he talking about marriage? He's talking about me and Emma, or is he talking about the church? He's talking about both, right, at the same time, back and forth, all right? Keep reading. Uh, verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let his wife see that she respects her husband. That is a masterful passage of Scripture, right? It it, it lays aside Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. Now, you guys know how the gospel works, right? Let's review that for just one second, right? You are a broken sinner. I am a broken sinner. Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life and then died a substitutionary death on the cross and then was raised from the dead. And the gospel is, if I will repent of my sins and put my faith in Jesus, I can be what? Joined to him, right? Everybody understand that? I can be joined to to Jesus through the gospel. I can be united to Christ, right? I'm one with him. His spirit dwells in me. I am connected to Jesus so that his righteousness is in my account and my sin goes to him, right? That is the beauty of the union of of the sinner with Christ in the gospel. Now, Paul is laying marriage on top of that and saying, man, God created marriage to be a picture of that. God created this one flesh union in which a husband and wife come together and they're one, and they're to love one another in covenantal faithfulness their whole lives. And so, in other words, the way that Jesus would love the church is the way that I'm to love my wife and the way that you're to love your spouse. So we're to sacrifice for our spouses. Why? Because Jesus did for the church. We're to forgive our spouses. Why? Because Jesus forgave the church. We're to refuse to abandon our spouses. Why? Because Jesus refused to abandon the church. We're to bear with the failings of our spouse because Jesus bears with the failings of the church. He does so today, by the way, right? You and I are still here. We've not been cut off, right? Even though we've let him down time and time again. We are to sanctify and beautify our spouse. Why? Because Jesus does so for the church. The marriage is a picture of that. You're like, well, man, was Jesus just making something new up here? He was not. This is all through the Bible. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says, your maker, God, the Father, he is your husband. That's the way the people of God were described in the Old Testament. They were described as the bride of God the Father. And so whenever they fell away from him, whenever they they fell into idol worship, things like this would happen. In Jeremiah 3.20, God says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. Idolatry was seen as spiritual adultery in the Old Testament. This, This image is so thick in the Bible that there's an entire book in the Old Testament devoted to it, the book of Hosea. You remember the book of Hosea? It's a strange book, right? God appears to the prophet Hosea, and he says, I want you to go marry Gomer. Now, Gomer was not your normal prophet-like wife, okay? She, she was a loose woman. She was a prostitute. And so 
Hosea is obedient. He goes and marries Gomer, okay, and they live together happily for a little while, and then Gomer strays off. She goes back to her own life, old life. She, get, she gathers up her lovers and goes to them and eventually falls into prostitution again and eventually is being sold in the market as a prostitute. And God tells Hosea, now I want you to go there, pull out your wallet and pay a hefty price to buy your bride back. Why does, why does Hosea exist? Why does the book exist? Why did God tell him to do all that? Well, he tells us in the book of Hosea. He says, because this is what? This is what I do for my church. This is what I do for my people. This is how I treat my people. You, you see, this, this image of marriage as the people of God, it's all through the scriptures. And so, so when Jesus answers this question, he says, man, have, haven't you read how, how God created marriage for the purpose? Or God created you male and female for the purpose of marriage? Okay, and then in verse 5, he gives clear instructions, okay? He goes, he's quoting Genesis 2.24, by the way. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, the simple, simple instructions of marriage are you're to leave your family, and you're to create a new family, and you are to cleave. Okay, the word cleave means to cement. It means to glue. It means to hold fast to. Okay, that's what you're supposed to do. There's your instruction in life. You are to hold fast to your wife, right? I was watching a OSU duel, Iowa State in wrestling. Or no, it was Iowa. Iowa in wrestling the other day. I was watching it on YouTube. And man, I just love college wrestling. And there were several times where, you know, God come out as a close match, you know. God come out of the referee's position and he's trying to get away as hard as he can. And that other college wrestler has a hold of him and he will not let him go, you know. And the guy is, you know, trying to tear away and he's doing all these moves and flips and rolls and trying to get away. And the other guy just, you know what he's doing? He's cleaving, all right. He is cleaving. Guys, that's what you have to do with your wife. My wife's tried to leave several times, and she's been out in the parking lot, and I got a hold of her legs, and I got her down, and I won't let go, and I'm not letting you go, him. She's like clawing and you know, trying to get away. I won't. That's never happened, but it would, you know. I mean, I'm willing to do that, like, but that's, that's the picture. The picture is, man, you hold on to that gal. You cleave to your wife. So not only does God design marriage, Jesus says, he created a male and female for the purpose of marriage. He created this to be a picture of Jesus in the church. And then, then God gives instructions. You're to leave and you're to cleave. Okay? And then God is also an active participant in the marriage. Again, notice in verse 6. It says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. This mysterious oneness of a husband and wife that is a picture of the gospel of, of our, our union with Jesus Christ. And then, then it says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Who? Who joined them? God did. What God has joined together. You, you see, not only did God design this thing to be a picture of Christ in the church, not, not only does God give instructions about marriage, about what it's to be, but then God also is an active participant in the marriage, in in. In unifying, bringing the husband, together, husband and wife together in a one flesh union. And then, you know what God does then? And then he creates sex. By the way, did you know God did that? No, Hollywood did not do that. Hollywood did not discover sex. Okay? I'll talk about that here in a little bit more. But God is the one who created the sexual union 
to be a picture of this one flesh oneness that he designs and accomplishes in marriage. So, God designs marriage, he commands marriage, and he's an active participant in the one flesh union of marriage. And here's the deal. You are not to tear up what God made. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this, this, is, this is God's. God has made this. You're asking the question, hey, what, for what reason, on what whim can I tear this thing up? And Jesus is answering. God has designed it. God has commanded it. And God is a participant in it. And, and you are not to tear it up. Well, Pastor, what if my marriage is hard? What if my marriage is brutally difficult? What if I'm married to the hardest, most irritating person in the entire world? Well, here's what I would say. That's pretty much a pretty good picture of Jesus in the church then, right? Because aren't we kind of that, huh? Aren't we the church? Aren't we kind of rebellious? Aren't we sort of lazy? Aren't we sort of non-compliant? Aren't we sort of hard to deal with a lot? Absolutely. Jesus was tortured, brutally staked to a cross to redeem and love a church who would constantly let him down. Anytime Pastor Daniel preaches on marriage, he always, he always brings up how, how, have you ever noticed the marriages of the Old Testament? You would think the marriages in the Bible, they would be this bliss, right? You know, this, this no problem, just smooth sailing stuff. Man, find me one. Find me one of those in the Old Testament. You know, Abraham and Sarah. Well, how about throwing Hagar in there? How's that, huh? How, how's that for a harmonious thing? Well, let's go to the next one. How about, how about Isaac and Rebecca? Well, things actually start out really good there until they each chose the favorite boy, and it ends in this deception of the father, this mother, yeah, this wife deceiving her father and dividing the boys. Well, let's go to the next one. How about Jacob and Rachel? Well, how many did he have? Rachel, Leah, you know, and put that mix together. Talk about a disaster. His, his, his sons end up, you know, selling the other, the, the favorite son into slavery and, and, and telling the mom and dad that he's died. I mean, it's, it's a brutal disaster. How about David? Did, uh, Solomon? I mean, pick a good one. There aren't. They're all difficult. They're all hard. Well, Pastor, what about this? I get this, I get this question a lot. What if, what if we got into our marriage foolishly, sinfully? Is it even God's will for us to be married? Huh? Again, Good questions are really important, okay? What would you say to the guy who gets up there and the plane gets up to about 10,000 feet, 8,000 feet or so, and he gets there to the edge of the door, and he jumps out of that dude, he's free falling, you know, going down. In about five seconds, he's like, I wonder if I should jump out of the plane, okay? Listen. That's a really dumb question, right? For, for that. Now, if you go back, right, if we had time machines, right, if Walmart sold those and we could go back, then it might be a good question. But after you've jumped, it's just not even a question you ought to ask. I, I'll tell you what I do to everybody in my office who, who asked me that. Well, you know, we, we got into this thing sinfully. We were both lusting. We were both, you know, we didn't have God in mind. We were, you know, hey, you know, hey, stop, you know. That, that's, that's long gone, all right? Here's the deal. You are married. Don't ask wrong questions. Ask right questions. Ask how you can live out the covenant relationship of Jesus Christ and his church in your marriage. Verse 7. Here's the Pharisee's response. 
So they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of a divorce and to send her away? All right, now, now first of all, well, let's, let's, let's read that. I, I want to show you what passage they're talking about, okay? I'm afraid you'll, you'll not understand what they're trying to say here. So they're trying to make it out like Moses in, in the Old Testament commanded people to divorce their wives. So let me, let me read you the passage they're quoting. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, and it begins in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he if he then finds no favor in his if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for it, that's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, first of all, did anybody hear Moses commanding us to divorce our wives? There is no such thing in that, right? You, you don't hear any kind of command that you ought to divorce your wife. Here's what Jesus says to them. Okay, he says, and he answers their question in verse 8. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed. Okay, that's very different than commanded. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it's not been so. So first of all, Jesus says, look, this was never God's plan in the beginning, but you know what happened? Your hearts are hard. Okay, you, 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 you've heard the Bible talk about hard hearts, haven't you? Uh, parable of the soils is what I think about, how it talks about the soil that's hard. You, you, you know what the characteristic of the hard soil is? The word of God does not sink in, right? In other words, the, the word of God just bounces off. The truth of God is not received. It's not obeyed. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not listened to, okay? So in other words, what Jesus is saying is divorce happens because at least one person in the marriage adamantly refuses to obey the truth of God. That's that's why divorce happens. It's not commanded here. No, no, Jesus is saying what happened here, here is you got people that won't repent. They won't repent of sin. They persist in hatred or unforgiveness or adultery or cruelty or abuse. And so the word of God does not penetrate their heart and marriages are dissolved. And divorce certificates are written out. And the command in Deuteronomy is simply, hey, this should not be a multiplied adultery deal. You, don't, you sure don't go back after you've already divorced this woman and she's been somebody else's husband and then he divorces her and then you take her back. That's just multiplied adultery. So it's never God's plan from the beginning, but at times it's a reality because of the hardness of people's hearts. Verse 9. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is really clear. To get a divorce except for sexual morality and to marry another, you commit adultery. This, this goes back to Matthew 5 where Jesus basically said the same thing. Divorce multiplies adultery. Look at verse 10. Now, all of a sudden the disciples weigh in. So they've been, they've been quiet so far. This is just between Pharisees and Jesus so far. But now all of a sudden the disciples, they hear him say that. They hear him say verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And they're thinking, wow, so, so th- there's, there's no divorce. The, it, the, only, the, only, the only divorce is, is when one, one, one person so commits sexual immorality, adultery, to such a point, to such an extent, I think there still ought to be forgiveness if we, if we follow Hosea's model, but, but there's a point where if they continue in that adultery, it just dissolves the marriage. 
And, and the disciples are saying, if that's the case, man, guys, it's better not to marry. That's what verse 10 says. If such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to get married. So the disciples say, basically, if this is the way it is in marriage, if there's no way out of a miserable marriage, if it's God's plan to stay in a hard, demanding marriage where I, I'm not getting my needs met, then it's better not to marry. Here you got a bunch of single guys that are saying, man, if I got to get at the altar and if I got to make this lifelong commitment with this gal and I don't know exactly how she's going to turn out, you know, what's she going to look like in 30 years or how's she going to act or maybe she's real nice now, but as soon as we get married, she's going to put the hammer down, you know I mean? I mean, it, and I'm committing to the unknown here. Man, I'd better not get married. These are guys that are allergic to the covenant. Huh? Yeah, they're, they're allergic to, to making covenants where you got to depend on God. They've got a phobia of a lifelong commitment. And here's, here's what Jesus says to that. He says to them in verse 11, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's given. Then he says in verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Essentially, Jesus says this. And, and I don't know, eunuch is a strange thing for us. It was a man who had, in a way, could not have a sexual relationship. Um, in Jesus' day, a lot of harems, um, men would be made so because they were in charge of the harem. Okay, so... That, that's not really a concept we think of today. But essentially, Jesus is saying there's some people that are born that way, some people are made that way by men. And then this third category is one that the Bible goes in and unpacks, and that is people who, who, who embrace singleness as a God-given gift, okay? So that's not what the disciples are doing here. The disciples are saying, hey, this deal is hard. It's, it's hard to be married. And if there's no way out of it, then I'm out. Okay, that is, that is not a biblical concept. Again, we're made for marriage, Right? We, we are made for this covenant relationship. We're made to, to love a sinner really well as a picture of Jesus and the church. Now Jesus, now, Jesus says there is such a thing as the gift of singleness, okay? But the key is it's a gift that God gives. Paul had this gift, by the way. 1 Corinthians 7, um, verse 6 and 7, he describes his own kind of uh, life is a single man. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. He goes on to describe kind of the, the, the advantage of singleness in the kingdom of God or in the, in the work of the kingdom, the work of ministry. In verse 32 of the same chapter, he says in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit. I said this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul describes this gift of singleness where a person says, man, I've been given this gift to not have to be married, and it's for the kingdom of God. Like, it's, it's so I can run hard after the kingdom. It's like Jesus. It's like Paul. These are guys who basically weren't married so they could plunge their lives into the hard areas of the gospel, so they could immerse themselves in the gospel need, so they could wear themselves out in the hands and feet ministry of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel at the ends of the earth. Now, all of us are supposed to be sold out to the kingdom work, right? But here's the reality. If you've got a family, if you've got a wife and kids, if you've got a husband and kids, there, there's a certain amount of your energy that's spent right there at home, right? Man, if, 
I love being married. I love having kids. Obviously, I have six of them, so uh, I, really, I really love all that. And, and, and a lot of my time is, is spent there. If, I've told people, if I, if I wasn't married and didn't have kids, man, I, right now I get a visit about a couple times a week. You know, I'm, I'm at church a couple nights a week, and then I get to go, just go out and try to hit some homes and visit people. And, and, but, man, if, if I wasn't married and had no kids, it'd be every night I'd be knocking on you guys' door, you know. How you doing? How, how's your spiritual life? You know, how can I pray for you? I'd come around supper time. Why in the world would I cook as a single guy? That's the question I want to ask, you know. I'd come over about supper time, you know, visit you, encourage you in the faith. Oh, you guys are eating? Well, I'll step out. Pastor, would you like to stay? Well, I think I might, you know. I, I mean, that's what I, I it'd, be, it'd be all out for ministry. Jesus said some people are gifted in a way that they can give their whole lives, they can devote their whole lives to the work of ministry. All right, now, all of this should drive us to ask the really important question. How do I stay married? Okay? Hang with me. How do I stay married? So that question could be a series of sermons, all right? But, but let me just say, let's just stick with what we have here. Embrace what Jesus says about marriage. Okay? Like, like really embrace that what you're doing in your marriage is you are you are imaging forth the picture of Jesus and his church. You, you know what that ought to do? That ought, that ought to allow you to rejoice. You know, Proverbs 5 says an interesting thing. Proverbs 5, 18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It, you ought to rejoice in marriage. You know why? It's a picture of Jesus and the church. You're like, yeah, but my husband's this and my wife's this and we're unhappy and we fight all the time. I'm sorry. And I'm really praying that God would redeem and restore that. But here, here's the reality. You ought to rejoice in marriage for a different reason. You ought to rejoice in marriage because Jesus loves his church covenantally. He forgives his church. He redeems his church. He restores his church. That's why, that's why I ought to rejoice in marriage. You ought to rejoice in marriage because you're living out the gospel. Whenever you are forgiving a sinful spouse, whenever you're loving a difficult spouse, whenever you're being faithful to one who is faithful, faithless, you are, you are living out the gospel. It's the gospel in action. Don't spend time thinking about how you can get out of that. Spend time praying and thinking about how you can live that out for the glory of God. So number one, believe what Jesus says here. Just believe it. Like, really believe that's what marriage is. Number two, apply everything you come to discover in Christ to your marriage first, all right? So as you are living your Christian life, so now you've been joined to Jesus, and now you're living the Christian life, everything you figure out, you, you apply that to your marriage. Right? Everything. The Bible says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know who your first neighbor is? It's your spouse. That's your first neighbor. Right, so everything you everything you learn in the Christian life. So, so for instance, we've been going through Matthew, right? What was the last chapter? Matthew eighteen. We start out with a sermon on humility. Remember where Jesus said, "In case you know, the only way you're getting in the kingdom of heaven is if you humble yourself like a child." All right, take what you learn about humility. Take what you learn about about not putting your own needs first and thinking of the needs of others. Who do you apply that to? First, first person in the line, your spouse. Last week. The end of Matthew 18, forgiveness. Remember the parable of the talents, the guy that owes 10,000 talents, right? He, he can never pay. He begs for mercy, and the king releases him, unshackles him, unshackles his family, sets him free, and forgives the debt. Now, you're to do that same thing with your spouse. Everything you learn in the Christian life, you, you apply first to your spouse and then 
to your neighbor. It's a shame. It's a, you know, it, it would be a shame if you would, if you would be a great encourager to your small group. It would be a shame for you to be a great comforter to your Sunday school class and you not be those things best to your spouse. Number three, flee sexual immorality and embrace the helpfulness of sex in the one flesh union within marriage. If you'll notice, every time Jesus talks about marriage, he talks about sex. He talks about immorality. He talks about adultery every, every time. Why is that? Because, because the two go together. All sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is essentially any kind of sex outside, any kind of sexual relationship, any kind of pornography, fantasizing lust, flirtatious behavior, inappropriate emotional connection, sexual immorality, adultery, any, anything in that realm outside of marriage. It's immorality. And immorality tears at the fabric of your marriage and it tears at the fabric of your relationship to Jesus. The Bible says flee from it. Flee from it and at the same time embrace the helpfulness of the sexual relationship within the bonds of marriage. The oneness that the Bible describes in marriage is pictured in the sexual relationship. It's God's design. God created it. We, we should trust God's design. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7. So the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. For the wife does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You belong to each other. Do not deprive one another except for perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I am sick of people not putting sex in its biblical parameters. People in our culture think Hollywood created sex. They think Hollywood owns sex. Hollywood is as dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to sex. They don't know the first thing. Like They don't, they, they don't understand it. They, they legitimately have no idea what it's for. They don't know what it's for. They, they don't know how to use it. It, it belongs to God. Don't, don't let demonized abusers who use sex to harm and terrorize, don't let them define what sex is. You, 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 know what, you know what the devil does so often? He takes sacred things and he pollutes them. Have you ever wondered why in America, two of the most popular curse words are the name of God the Father, associated or connected with damn, and the name of Jesus Christ? Have you ever wondered why that is? You think that's just a people thing? That's not a people thing. I've been all through Muslim countries. I have never heard a Muslim use the name of Muhammad as a curse word. I've never heard anybody in a Muslim country do that. I've never heard anybody in a Buddhist country. My, my daughter lives in China. I've never heard anybody in a Buddhist country use the name of Buddha as a curse word. So why in the world can you not go a day in America without hearing someone use God's name as a curse word or Jesus' name? You know why? Because the devil loves to take sacred things and pollute them. What's he done with sex? The same thing. You've got people that are not trusting God's design. You've got people that are living in immoral, immorality, tearing apart the fabric of marriage and, and their own relationship with God. And then you've got people on the other side of it saying, man, I, I don't want anything to do with sex. Sex is dirty. Sex is filthy. We're going we're gonna to have our 2.4 kids, whatever the American average is, and then, then we're done with that. In both ways, you're not trusting God. You're not trusting God's design. My friends, let's be the church 
that creates a culture of marriage and family that honors Jesus and is a picture of Christ in the church. Man, you can ask Pastor Dan. So much of the, the, the tore apart stuff that we see each week. We, we, we have people come in for benevolence. We, we, we write down their stories. And so much of the hardship and the agony and the pain and the destruction. You, you know what the root of that is? The destruction of marriage. Time and time again, particularly with women. Particularly with women, it is, it is the failure of, of marriage. It is the, the, the root cause and immorality that is, has brought such pain and destruction upon our society. Let's, let's, let's be the church that's the other way. Let's, let's be the light, saying this is what marriage means. Let's be the, the church that supports each other and praying for each other's marriages. Let's be the church that, that is defined by, by us believing what God says about this union. Let's be that people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we just ask you right now, God, to, uh, to put it in our hearts how to obey this word this morning. Father, if, there is, um, if there's reconciliation that needs to happen between husbands and wives, God, I pray that it would begin to happen right now. God, I pray that, that there would be uh, confession of sin, that there'd be repentance, that there'd be... Um, shows of affection and grace towards spouses. I, I pray, Father, that there'd be healing, that there'd be restoration. Father, I pray for those who are considering being married. God, I pray that they would begin to see marriage in a whole new light, that they'd begin to see it as, as your design and as, as your covenant and as, as the picture of Jesus in the church. Father, I pray for those who've been wounded by, by divorce, those who've been broken and shattered. God, I pray for you to come into their life just like you came to, to the woman at the well and, and meet them in their, in their pain and, and give them living water. God, I pray that the gospel would be the healing salve in their life. Father, we ask you to, to move us to steps of obedience. God, we ask you to teach us to teach our kids what it means to, to be married in, as a picture of Christ in the church. Father, help us. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.